Hello, everybody. Today you have Jake and Seth, and we will be discussing Spike Lee's 2006 hit film, Inside Man, starring Clive Owen, Willem Dafoe, Denzel Washington. Um, it's It's got a great cast. I'll stop there. We'll, we'll dive into the rest of the cast later, but it, it's got just an all-star cast. Uh, the movie did very well. It made $185 million on a budget of $180. So that's 4X its budget, which is very good. And at the time, I think it still might be Spike Lee's most successful film, although Black Klansman may have eclipsed it. But it's one of his most successful films. It's very well commercially, very highly regarded critically. And I don't know about you, Seth, but I remember this film. And I think it's one of the better heist films from that era of like the aughts. So I'm going to kick it back to you. I remember liking this film a lot. So I have a lot of good memories. And rewatching it was a lot of fun. So I'm going to throw it back to yeah, you. Yeah, I remember seeing this in theaters and liking it and being impressed. And then on rewatch uh, a couple nights ago, I, w- I liked it more than I remembered, actually. And uh, I, I think it was uh, it was a script that was kind of passed around in Hollywood for a little bit. I know that Oliver Stone, I think, at one point was attached. Um, but then it like ended up with Spike. And then that's how Denzel gets involved. And I know that like a lot of the roles, the Clive Owen, Jodie Foster, Christopher Plummer, all those roles were kind of like passed around. And I'm, I think Spike ended up casting the right people, even if they weren't like the first choices for a lot of the producers and stuff, because I think the cast is really good and they worked well together and stuff. Um, I also think it's the best example of Spike Lee making a movie. That's it's probably the best example of him not making a movie specifically about race and sort of like about something else, but still including his perspective on race throughout the movie and other parts. And I think that works a lot better for him. Not saying that like movies like Malcolm X or do the right thing, like I think do the right thing is his best movie. And clearly those movies are more primarily about race and racial injustice, but I think this movie proves he can make a Hollywood sort of big budget film and he makes it well, but he also like continues to share his perspective of the black person in America and stuff. And I think, you know, I just think it works well on a lot of levels. And I, yeah, I was impressed rewatching it, honestly. I couldn't agree more with you, especially in regards to the racial aspect. So this film, especially given the context of everything that's going on, and just to date this, it is officially uh, June 21st, 2020. So if anyone's hearing this in the future, there's a live right now, you know, there's a lot of race stuff going on. Um, and... At the time in 2006, I, to me, I didn't. I I thought this, to your point, was more just. I saw it as a straight up commercial movie. Looking at it now, it is still a great commercial, straight up blockbuster, awesome movie. But there's a lot of nuance with race here, and a couple of the things in my notes that I called out was was one, uh, without jumping ahead a bit here. But at one point, Willem Dafoe's character and the cops are talking about going and hitting uh, the bank robbers, and at one point, yeah. as they're about to go in. One of the we'll get into the film shortly, but the bank robbers disguise all the hostages so that they all look alike, and that creates an issue. And when Defoe is talking about possibly storming the banks, so the cops are talking about possibly storming the banks, they refer to them as we won't know the homies from the good guys until the shooting starts. Even though at this point they've seen a couple several of the robbers and none of them are black or African American, it was right. um, and it's just. And there are a couple other things throughout there. At one point, uh, another cop drops the N-word to an African-American cop. And there's also this whole thing where uh, they let a Sikh hostage out. They accuse him of being... Um, they, I mean, they seized... I'm not, I'm not laughing because this is funny. I'm laughing because it's played for humorous effect in the movie. Um, it, sorry, I'm tripping over my uh, 
my PC-ness here. But they get a Sikh, they think he's an Arab, and they rip off his turban, and that's a big thing in, in Sikhism. And it's and later on, they're talking to him. But this is one of the things that I love about Lee, and it's one of my favorite things about 25th Hour, which we can also talk about later. But it's a great movie that isn't about race, but race is like, it's an integral part of the film. But it's not, it's not the only, it's not taking up the spotlight and is the central spine of the film, but it's still influencing everything going on. Okay, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Already. Right. No, and like, that, there's a lot of examples in Inside Man of sort of like language use, especially the language used by the white police. And like Defoe comes across, I think on if you don't watch it carefully on first viewing, Defoe comes across as like a good cop, a guy who knows how to like tactically execute situations. Seems like he's like very aware and stuff. Some of the, you know, the cop that has the example of the kid that almost shot him clearly is like sort of set in his ways type of like an old racist, but also like kind of like, I don't know, aware of situations, I guess. But I think the like the language that you, that's used is really interesting because it's like all of that stuff. It's like it's it's the white cops who are using their authority over other people, especially people of color. And then at the end of the movie you know, you learn about Christopher Plummer's history and you think about uh, the way that, you know, white people were using their power back in that time and how, you know, this guy created a banking empire over with, you know, flood money from Jews, basically. And it's like, I think, you know, for Spike, it all relates back to the same thing. And I think that's what's cool about his movies is that it's, uh, you know, it can, it can be something as subtle as just language used by a cop. But by the end of the movie, it's like, no, this is a systematic thing. And if you're really paying attention to everything and like every, you know, it does all fit. And I agree. I also think there's a little more nuance. Everything you said is hundred percent, but I think there's a little nuance there, which I picked up this time that I really like bringing it back to that seat conversation. So later on, they're talking to him and it, again, I'm laughing. It's a, it's one of those things that's meant to be played for, for humor and horror. He is criticizing and complaining about that being called an Arab and Willem Dafoe, the white cop, is like, no, no, you heard that wrong. I didn't hear that. And he keeps yeah, going he on. That, yeah. But what was funny was as that's going on, you see the two, uh, you see Denzel and I'm sorry, I can never pronounce his name properly. Chwalti Ajakafor. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. That's on. That, that's a personal thing. I've always had a real hard time. It's a tough name. Chwalti Ajakafor. <laughs> um, so those, those two cops are looking at him and they're kind of just poker facing it. And when it's all over, they look to him and they're like, but I bet you can get a cab. And for people who aren't familiar in New York, black people have a real hard time getting cabs. Most of the cab drivers aren't white, but that is another form of racism of a different race being. And what I liked about that, and I'm to tie it back to what you, you said about the Arthur Case character, the bank owner who used his power over Jewish people. What I loved about this movie, and I think, Yes, it deals, it's not about race, but it deals with race in a nuanced way. And I think it's really timely given everything that's going on when you talk about, I don't know, I'm not going to, I'm going to mess up these terms, but like systemic racism, like soft racism, implicit racism, like inferred, like why all these things. And then it's also what I, what I appreciate is it's not just white on black, it's German and white on Jews, on fellow whites a lot, like on Jews and it's, and then it's the what whether it's the cab drivers on black it's about power that's what racism that's what most evil right. things come down to it's about power and asserting control or taking away 
that that's why and i think yeah like there's a way you can watch the movie where it's like hey this is an interesting bank robbery that like you probably like won't figure out till the end but there's also this aspect of it i think where it's like it's not just that this guy has something hidden in a bank vault it's that it's it's protected by his bank that's built on blood money from the jews and then it's surrounded by these cops who are there to protect you know, white rich people basically. And it's like, not only, you know, the bank itself, the heist itself is an interesting thing, but I just think all the other layers of protection around that, like, uh, that, you know, valuable stuff that he has in his bank vault is like, it's not just the bank and the bars. It's also the cops and all the people and the lawyers and the judges and all the political influence he has, like the rings of defense that this guy has made to hide his history is, uh, has, has no bounds basically. It is impressive, but now that we're talking about it, what I want to throw to you is I think the message is again, ultimately one that is hopeful and we can talk about the ending of the movie later. And we'll, I feel like we're jumping the gun here. We haven't really laid the setting, but one of the things I wanted to ask you was now that we're talking about it and looking at the movie, Clearly, we were, we've talked about power and racism and like this, the system protecting this man. So clearly, this movie is supposed to imply money is power. This man has money. He took it. This man has money, which equals power in this world. He took it from, from Jews and the other victims. With the I think the, the real backstory was like... Well, when wait, Jews, no, let me finish. Sorry. Let me finish. And so that he has, as you said, he has all these systems of power surrounding him. But the one thing that he can't protect himself from is the truth. And if this were to get out, all of his power would be for naught. Or wh- whether he loses everything or not, it's clear to me that the one thing his power cannot, if this gets out, that is the one thing that could take him down or, or diminish right. him in a way that he would he would do, deem it a loss. And before we go into that, I had a question for you just randomly. Why does he still have this document if it can destroy him? That's a that's a decent question. I think another easy early question that I had was like, if you did have something like this that tied you to that history, uh, would you really leave it in a bank in the middle of Manhattan? Why not have it at your mansion, you know, uh, or like some place that's a little less? I, you know, I just thought a bank in the middle of Manhattan might not be my pick for the safest place in the world. So my ca- and the reason I asked that question is the one thing that occurred to me was that he subconsciously wanted to be caught. Because one of the things they show in that office is he has all these, what seems to be awards from Jewish foundations or Jewish charities. Right. And I just think of the idea, I'm not a police expert, just for somebody who's watched a lot of TV shows and true crime stuff, the idea that sometimes or frequently criminals do things to kind of give themselves away or they have a, or they break almost immediately under pressure. Sometimes they just give it up immediately. Most people have a real hard time, like a guilty conscience is a powerful thing. And so I, I, think, I okay. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm, you got, you got, you got. I guess my answer to it would be, I think that the ring and the, the diamonds were, were probably going to be passed down like to his inheritance or his estate or whatever. So that's, I mean, I get why you're keeping those jewels. And by the way, it's like, what was really going on with this guy was when Jews were taking, taken off to concentration camps, the, their houses and all their valuables would come back to somebody. And basically they came back to Christopher Plummer. And so he ended up inheriting all of these Jews who went off to die. He inherited the most valuable jewels and, and whatnot. And then he went off to America and he started lending money as a banker and he built a banking empire, which is a very smart thing to do. And, a lot, and stuff like this actually happened after the World War II. Like people, they didn't stay in Germany. They took their fortunes, they went to other countries and they built empires and they tried to wash away their history basically. And, um, and so 
But it's like that the fact that he has that document, I agree with you. Like I would probably burn that piece of, of paper that tied me to the Nazis and how I how I made all my money. Um, but I would keep the jewels. I mean, I get that part. Yeah. And then the only other thing I'm thinking of is I guess Clive Russell's character, Russell Dalton, figured it out somehow. So clearly there's another thread somewhere along the line that could That was a, one of my questions too, was like you never really understand how Clive Owen uh, figured it all out, how he was related, or like how he knew about Christopher Plummer, or like what did he have a Jewish background? Maybe his ancestors told him about uh, what happened. It's unclear as to like how he knew about it and then how he planned the heist, but it is very fun to sort of watch him uh, execute the heist and kind of be the mastermind the whole time, but you really don't know much about the guy even by the end of the movie. One of the things that I thought was initially, I was like, he's SAS just because he's British. I was thinking he had maybe MI6, MI5, but now I'm thinking about it. There's probably make more sense he was working with the Mossad or Israel in some way. Like Israel spent a lot maybe. of time and effort tracking down the Nazis, and I mean, don't I'm not referring to the awful Al Pacino movie uh, TV show Nazi Hunters or whatever Hunters. That's awful, but there were some real life like there were. Profiteers. Yeah, yeah. They volunteers. And then there were really like Mossad agents. If you see Munich, that was not for Nazis, that was for the uh there are similar things going on. They were they were going to Argentina and snatching Nazis and and bringing them back. So what what I just mean is there I keep coming back to the idea there might be another actually now that I say that, that didn't feel like a government operation. That so it's definitely a heist. I guess that's the mystery. It's an unanswerable question. One of the another question I kind of had was like how real is the Jodie Foster character? And it's like, I guess that there definitely are people out there that, uh, you know, work for extremely rich people, either as like private investigators or as people that kind of erase things for them or make deals, I guess. But part of me was sort of like, she kind of feels like a fabrication, but I do think Jodie Foster pulls that part off pretty well. I think it works. I never thought too much into like the realityness of that. But now that you say that, I don't like. I don't know how realistic it is that she gets to go into that bank and talk to the robber. That was the one part that really stuck out to me, especially back. It's two thousand six. There are cameras and phones. Like people saw. I don't think you can do that in two thousand six New York, especially after nine eleven. Like I just there was an intense intensity in New York that I think still exists with just like public. They're always yeah. I agree. There's just like there's always a lot of eyes in New York, and everyone's always wondering what the hell you're doing. Like I think that would be. People would be asking, who is that woman? Why did she go in? How did she come out? I won't go down that rabbit hole. I'm sorry. I feel like I've been diving yeah, down Yeah, that already. part you can pick it a little bit. Although it's like it's an interesting conversation that she lays on the guy. And with that being said, to your point, she nails – like she works for me. She is an ice cold – and yeah. I don't mean it sexist. She's like an ice cold bitch. I mean that's a compliment. Like she walks in. She never raises her voice. And she owns every conversation with all of these guys with the exception of maybe Dalton. But seeing her – uh, speak to Denzel and to even Arthur Case and all the men she comes into are either her inferior and one might be her equal. And that's well, I w- yeah, at the same time, it's like she has dirt on all of them. So it's like she has leverage on Denzel. She knows about this check casting scheme that he's kind of involved at, at the beginning of the, of the film. And it's like she clearly has, knows the dirt about Christopher Plummer before she's talked to him. And, you know, it's like she... Every conversation she walks into, if you have dirt on the other person, you immediately 
you know, you have leverage on them and they're going to do, you know, you're going to be able to manipulate them. And so it's like as powerful as all these people are, she always comes in, you know, one step ahead of them with information, basically. Which, again, information is power more so than money right. in this, at least in this little world. Um, we Should we, I guess we're 60 minutes in, should we give a quick just summary of the movie at this point? I feel. Sure. I guess I guess anyone's <laughs> seen it. It's just a bank robbery movie, but it's it's also a whodunit, and you're getting like the cuts back and forth as it goes. I know for me, when I first watched it, it was more of like, how did he do this? Because I couldn't figure out how. Because he keeps saying, "I'm going to walk out the front door," mm-hmm. and so the whole time you're watching the robbery. For me, on first viewing, is much more of like, how does he pull this off? Um, which you, I guess it's more like, I don't know. Do you want to describe how they they dress the all of the uh, captives in the same outfits, and then? They basically kind of like mix everybody up except for Clive Owen, who has to stay behind. Yes. And th- I think the reason it's good to talk about the structure of the movie, because now that we're going to really dive into the characters, it's hard to talk about them without just quick setting up. So as Seth said, the movie starts, they rob the bank, they quickly get everyone's cell phones. There's a tense scene where they call someone's bluff that says they didn't have their phone. And it quickly establishes Clive Owen as this like brutal dude jumping from there they have all the hostages dressed like them. So the hostages don't know who is a hostage and who is a robber, except when they have a gun. And what they do is they keep switching them in and out of rooms and they're violent with some of them. Not too much, not after the first guy. It's more so kind of pushing them, maybe like pushing their head into a door and that like banging it and then like sending them down. But they're they're rough, they're disorienting and they're, they're constantly moving from these different rooms, like having to put their heads down. And, and as this is going on, they're speaking to the cops and the cops are trying to get um, the cops are trying to get some insight into the bank. They're trying to get bugs in there, or cameras. And what the robbers do is they send out, they send uh, someone out asking for food. And what they keep doing is every time they need something, they let a hostage go to build trust and they keep asking for stuff and they're asking for things that don't make sense. And what you end up realizing or Denzel realizes is they're, they don't want to leave. They're stalling, which is abnormal. And there's some dog day references. I haven't seen the movie. I'll put that to you in a minute. But uh, where it goes is you realize they're stalling. You're not sure what they're there for. You have Jodie Foster trying to get something out of a lockbox for Arthur Case. And you know his motive. You know the cops. And the whole time, Dalton's telling you exactly what he's going to do. But you're not sure how he's going to do it. At the end of the movie, um, he kills a hostage. Denzel Washington loses his cool, tries to attack him. That ends up getting a hostage kill. Denzel loses control of the situation. Denzel, by the way, was like head cop in charge. They've been negotiating throughout the movie. It's like a cat and mouse game. And they're also like a put more like a poker game trying to bluff each other. So they storm the building. They find no money stolen. Everyone is uh, unhurt. The people, oh, well, not a few people are hurt, but everyone's alive. The person they thought was killed wasn't. And they later find there are no holes. There is no, there is no, like there is, the bank is sealed up. The only way out was the front entrance. The only people who came out, they have in custody. Nothing was stolen. All the clothes are there and they cannot find, they just can't figure out what happened. And then like the last 30 minutes of the movie is them closing up the investigation. And by them, it's Denzel and his partner. And you're, you're trying to figure out what happened. And it's them interrogating, which in, throughout the movie, you see them like in these bits of interrogations and you see them interrogating everyone. And as a viewer, you're not exactly sure who's in on this, 
who was in on the heist, who wasn't, but you know some of them were definitely in on it. Right. Um, yeah, the the structure of it with the interrogation... Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, we forgot. You find out that he was buried in a hole. They made a hole, he hid in it, and then literally walked out seven days later. And as he's walking out, Denzel's walking in, but doesn't recognize him because he never saw him without his mask. And he drops a diamond in his pocket, which is a callback to earlier in the movie when Denzel said he didn't have enough money to get a ring for his girlfriend who wanted right. it. Uh, yeah, that's another tough part for me to swallow, that this guy has the balls to actually bump into the cop looking for him and drop a diamond in his pocket. But, you know, it's a nice little Hollywood uh, little moment there. Um, yeah, the big reveal is basically that Clive Owen, he kind of changes this um, supply room by about three feet, I guess, to make a space for himself to live in it for about a week. And so he waits for the investigation to close and the bank to reopen. And then he does walk right out the front door like he says he would, which was when I first watched it, I didn't I didn't see. I will say that the twist worked for me because I didn't realize that's what he was basically doing. The whole time you're kind of like, how is he going to get the money out? Like he does need a plane or he does need a bus. You know, you're thinking like the way Al Pacino is thinking in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, which I get, there's a couple cookies in here, uh, you know, uh, the, the musical opening dog day afternoon also has this big musical opening. Um, the pizza delivery guy, I think is the same pizza delivery guy in dog day afternoon. Oh, that's amazing. Um, there's also one of the, one, one of the, uh, not prisoners. One of the witnesses inside the bank is, was also in dog day. Um, but the, it's, the whole situation is very reminiscent of Dog Day Afternoon and how that movie plays out and how the cops sort of have this script to follow when a situation like that happens. And then they sort of like follow it, you know, re- almost recklessly, you know, to a point where it's like, even if it's not the smart thing to do, they'll still follow that script. And what's interesting about this movie is Clive Owen kind of like knows the script ahead of time and he kind of plays it against the cops. I think one of my favorite moments is sort of like... Um, when they try to bug the cops, then the cops try to bug them, and there's kind of this tech war between all of them. I like that too. The uh, I kind of like how you called it, like the the tech war, I like the information war. What I liked about it again, I, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to us, but again, I feel like it reinforces the idea of information as power. And I, you mentioned before the idea about the cops sticking to the playbook, and there's even a line with Denzel saying they mentioned about going off book and he's like, that's the problem. It feels like they have our book. And right. I always like to think, I think of the Enigma machine in World War II, how the allies were able to decode the German uh, messaging. And again, just like the idea of knowledge is power. And in this case, the, the knowledge that, that they have, to your point, they know the criminals know exactly what the cops plan to do. And it allows them to prepare in a way that pushes them in all these red herrings. What, whether I mean the Albanian example you gave of the uh, the dictator just giving the propaganda speech was funny, and also provided that was one of the more funny scenes in the film. And that was the thing I really liked about this. It really easily balances humor and also satire. Sometimes, like when they're showing the video games, it's doing a lot, and it's going from it's always dramatic and the. I thought that was a great scene too when the when the Robert Clive Owen kind of sits down with this young black kid who's from Brooklyn and he's playing on his like PSP, which is a game that's like a very Grand Theft Auto type of game, basically. And it's just like his phone today. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. And it's basically, you know, it's one of these subtle spike commentaries where he's like, this is what young black children uh, celebrate, basically, is killing and money. And that's what they learn from people. You know, he, he references 50, 50 Cent in the scene, I think. But it's like they learn this from rappers and they celebrate this stuff. And it's like, it's such a backwards way of looking at the world. Um, I thought that was a great scene, especially that- the way it was framed, too, inside the, the money uh the what do you call it the, the vault? vault yeah they're surrounded yeah. by it and the, they're sitting on blocks of money i think in the scene <laughs> yeah and well there's a lot i want to get, get into that later especially about the cinematography cinematography and the visuals because that's going to be great but i really like that part and i think one it really humanizes the clive owen character and also kind of shows he has this weird morality which they'd already hinted at before whether he's avenging the the victims that this guy case benefited off or it's a more personal revenge. You don't know, but he seems to have at the end. He kind of says something like I did it for the money, but people should still know the truth or something. It's like, I yeah, forget what, exactly what he says. So maybe more of an Avenger, but it was interesting and with this kid. You can tell it's very subtle, but to me, it's also pretty clear. He disapproves of the game. He, he shares spikes opinion as opinion. He doesn't think a kid should be playing this game. He thinks it's way too violent. Um, but one of the things I couldn't tell is it looks like as he plays the game, the character is the most violent. Like he sho- like shoves a grenade in his mouth. I couldn't tell the way they were cutting it, whether it was him doing it or the kid do- doing it to show him and try and impress upon him, like maybe impress the older guy. But it was a really nice scene. Also, I love that kid actor. I think he went on to do other things. But um, whether or not, what, whether he did or not, he's a great actor. And I normally hate, I, I hate when people criticize the media and use it as just like a, a stop, a catch all like, oh, the only problem is media. And as someone who grew up liking violent video games and who's always watched violent movies and who is not violent himself, I always hated that. I just thought it was such, I, I, I thought it was censorship. I thought it was a form of censorship that was a bigger problem right. than what they were trying to cure. And it wouldn't cure the actual disease people especially as a young kid, anyone who knows boys, they're naturally violent is a strong word, but they're very physical and giving right. I think outlets such as video games are much a good outlet. But at the same time, as I've gotten older, the explicit graphic violence of that, like you don't need to be killing, blowing up heads. And I know that was, I don't know if you can remember actually do that in Grand Theft Auto, but I remember playing Grand Theft Auto and you, you, the idea was to go out there and literally cause as much carnage and mayhem as you can. I mean, it's a violent game. I, yeah, it's it's the, as violent as you can get. You can kill people. You can pick up prostitutes. Uh, this is well. I mean, I don't think. I think it's it's not one thing. You know, it's like it's not that it's not that video games cause this, and it's not that like rap music causes this. I think what Spike is pointing out though is that just like the culture inside black communities, this is what young kids celebrate. And it's what what Spike does in all of his movies, and he's always done this as he's been. Very influenced by Bertolt Brecht, the playwright, who uh, the the main technique is to cause debate, uh, ir- regardless of your narrative, basically. Almost almost primarily so outside your narrative. As long as you're causing debate, you're doing the right thing. It's sort of the Bertolt Brecht uh, way of thinking. And so when Spike does a scene like that, he's not saying one thing is right or one thing is wrong. He's just saying this is what black kids celebrate. And the, like he's making you deal with that and he's making you debate about it. It's the, and like If you watch Do the Right Thing, his first breakthrough movie, it's littered with things like that. That's interesting. I haven't seen Do the Right Thing in a long time. Or I don't know if I've ever seen the full movie, but I'm not familiar with it. But with this, and you just said it, 
I couldn't figure out why I like this. And other times I get defensive and don't like it. But in this film, I liked. And now that you, the way you described it, I feel like it's a little clear to me now. It's not a judging or it's not like the blame game. It's more so like, yeah. or to your point, it's like, it's, I'm not blaming the video games, but to, now that you said it to him, it's, he is really more saying that to your point, the video games and the rap music and the celebrities, it's a reflection. I see it more as a reflection of the culture and it's, instead of blaming them for being, this is what's wrong with black culture or excuse me, our, our culture, American culture, the it's no, this is what they're seeing. Like this is, reflection right that's one thing i was talking about gangster rap and like and people used to hate it back then and people still don't like it now and again it's something that makes them uncomfortable it's a lifestyle they don't understand but that's what they see art is a usually a reflection of someone's surroundings or how they interpret it and whether they like it or not no i'm not calling the video game art i'm just saying i think what i like about this is that as you said lee isn't blaming the art or mediums himself but at the same time he's using them he's not blaming them but he's showing that they're part of a bigger problem. Exactly. And it's like those same techniques he's kind of using in the same way with white people in the movie, where it's like, what are these people celebrating? What they celebrate is money, basically. All the white people in this movie are out for money, including Clive Owen, you know? And it's like all the cops are there to protect the richest man, basically, with his money, to protect his bank. It's it's all set up to uh, as a power structure, like you said. And so it's like, I that's kind of, to me, it's like, I think the argument for why this could be the best Spike Lee movie is because it works perfectly fine as a bank heist movie, as we've described, where it's like this interesting thing where, you know, Clive Owen builds this like area inside the bank to like help himself get out. And there's a nice twist, but it's like, as soon as you start doing a deep dive into the movie in any of these aspects, it's like you, you start picking up on all these other subtleties that that's like, you know, not only is like a layer inside this movie, but it's a layer inside all of his movies. I like that. This movie actually made me want to go see more Spike Lee films, and I'm glad. Maybe you want to see new ones, because after seeing Defy Bloods, which we'll talk about later, I was I was a little low on him, but this is one of the movies, as I said, I've always liked it. And actually, 25th Hour, which is a Spike Lee film, as you know, is one of my, I think, top three. It's not top three, top five. Yeah, that's, the, that's another one. The, the 25th Hour and this one, I think, are the two that are sort of more, a little more commercial and uh, worked successfully, like, box office-wise, but still, like, have a very good subtext to, to both of them. And that, I, as we were talking before, I, I wrote that down. We've talked about this in the past, the mirror dialogue in 25th Hour, where Edward Norton's character rips on every stereotype in Manhattan, is one of my favorite, and I think one of the most poignant. But the idea, the film's not about race, but at the same time, it's a part of that film and that fabric, whether it's him working for the Russians and then you're like, and it's all the right. different and, and they play for all, whether it's the cops, the firemen, it's, it, I understand that there are certain themes, author, artists and creators like to come back to and it resonates with them with Spike Lee. I think sometimes he can beat one drum too loudly and, or uh, trying to, I, I'm trying to say this in a way that's like central. No, I know what you say. I think it's, sometimes there are definitely movies where Spike, it, the message overtakes the narrative. 
And it's like he kind of loses. And I think this happens somewhat in The Five Bloods, uh, where it's like the messages he's trying to to speak to the public overtake the storytelling at certain points. And it's like, at the end of the day, you still need to be a storyteller executing a story and doing And it's like he's perfectly capable of doing that. I just think, you know, not every movie is a hit for every director. And it's like on his misses, I think he kind of loses himself on the message side and kind of like loses track of telling a story at times. I, but in, Inside Man, I think, is like maybe his tightest movie, start to finish. I agree. I think it's one of his tightest films. And I just, I really liked it upon rewatch. And it's funny. I look, I, I look back, the movie did well, but I feel like it should have done even better back then than it did. Like, just with this cast, like Clive Owen was still pretty big back then. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was also gonna say it's one of it's it's a sneaky Denzel performance. I mean, I feel like you can say that for a lot of Denzel movies, but he does a lot of ad libbing in this movie. I think a lot of the interrogation scenes, he's kind of ad libbing. I know that line you talked about where he's like, "But I bet you can you can get a cab in New York." I think that was an ad lib by him, and so I think he's really uh, he's really like gregarious in this movie, really charismatic. Uh, I you just feel like you're you, in good hands with them the whole time, kind of. Oh, yeah. Can I just quickly jump in? One of uh, the lines he has in this movie as he's kind of verbally sparring with Clive Owen's character. He mentions he's going to be surrounded by women in a hot tub sipping on a pina colada. And Denzel's character is like, no, it's going to be more like Jesus and Jamal in a shower. And that <laughs> thing you're sucking on, it's not a pina colada. And I realize that that's clearly we're laughing. That's uh, violent implication for jail, uh, but at the same time, we have a friend, a mutual friend, who says that all the time, and it is, <laughs> I just think it's a very funny line, and again, I know there's some violent implications, but it's a good line, it's fine, and if that, I I don't know if that was ad-lib, but, but, but you said there's a playfulness to him, and it is a cat and mouse game, and he feels like a player, and you're not sure if he's the cat or the mouse, and he doesn't know at certain points if he's the cat or the mouse, and right. I really liked it. It's one of his stronger performances. He had a lot of good performances in the aughts, but I really liked this one. It's one of my, I don't want to say favorite Denzels, but it's, it is among my more favorite recent Denzels from the last 20 years. It's not as like, you know, if you watch Training Day, like that's a much showy performance. Or like if you watch Malcolm X, that's a very transformative performance where he goes from this criminal to this like, uh, Islamic black man with all these righteous uh, aspirations and stuff. But it's like, I think this one's one of the ones where he kind of gets to, the, he, he, he kind of just gets to be a movie star for like an hour. <laughs> and like, it's not like he has to dig too deep inside of his soul to pull this one out. He's just trying to have fun, which is a lot more for the viewer. I think it's, it's much more palatable because everyone around him, you know, even Defoe and Gia are both kind of like given pretty serious performances. Um, and like Jodie Foster is ice cold, Christopher Plummer is this very cold guy, and so Denzel, it's like he's the he's the real lifeblood of the movie. Where it's like for the viewer, it's a much more palatable person to follow. You're right; he's really the heat in every scene, whether the emotion. And I also think I'd be interested to get your opinion. I think he does a good job. I'm, I don't know if he's necessarily elevating the other actors in the scene. There's good acting throughout, or if he's just elevating the scene. But he's doing a great job in this room where I think we'll get into winners. I think he, I don't know if he's the winner. So what you described, but he's doing the scene. if I, yeah, okay. So what you just described there, if I had to, Denzel, I think is a great, great actor. One of the greatest of this, of this generation, without a doubt. Uh, and I think he deserves every award he's had. The two criticisms I would have of his acting style, 
I think sometimes he can be over the top. And that's not <laughs> I don't want to make it a racial thing. I just think sometimes he can go he can go a little too yeah, high yeah. into the red. I know what you mean. And that's I don't think there's any racism. Yeah. There are over actors on of all yeah, races. <laughs> I think sometimes he's he has a tendency Al Pacino, same thing. Yeah. He has a tendency to go over the top, you know. Uh, and the other thing I would say about Denzel is I think he's kind of a solo performance kind of guy. I don't think he's the type of guy that elevates other actors the way that like even like a Jamie Foxx or the way we talk about Downey Jr. Where it's like the people in the rooms are suddenly on you know a higher level just because they're around them. I think Denzel is more of almost the Day-Lewis type where he can dominate people to a fault. Um, the people that act well with him, um, boy... It's I would, like I would say Foster. It's like people with confidence. It's the yeah, and I think it's I think, a, it's another heavy kind of that's yeah. going back at him. It's hard. It's hard to kind of be finesse around Denzel. I think I, I would agree with that assessment, and I might be looking too much into it now. I think Clive Owen does a great job, but even so, I think the scenes with Plummer and Jodie Foster's characters resonate a little better with the Denzel character. And maybe it's just because it's that the um, the yin and yang of it. it it's his emotion yeah. and style. Um, one of the things I actually wanted to ask you, actually, I don't know if you're ready. I kind of wanted to pivot into the cinematography because it also deals with the characterization. I wasn't sure if you noticed this. I didn't notice in the film, but in the notes and the research, I learned that Denzel, every time they show him, it's handheld cans, and it's meant to demonstrate how he's not in control or it's because... He's reacting to everything, yet it's a mm. steady cam when it's Dalton. And I think in the scenes where they're together, it is a steady cam. No, it's a handheld, but it's steadier than normal. And it's it's supposed to show the difference between the characters in terms of control and out of control. And also, I think, just helps set the... It's... Oh, I guess that's it. I'm not going to... That's interesting. I hadn't picked up on that when I was watching, but now that you say it, I, on memory, I think you're totally right that... And I, that's an interesting uh, technique. Aspect to it. Oh, is it technique the right word? Yeah, because uh, it's like you know, I think you're right. Denzel's story is kind of much more personal and sort of like this handheld camera. You know, you kind of feel almost claustrophobic with him more so than you do with Dalton, who's like in the bank that's closed up and like. But you're right. All the shots with Dalton, you know, especially that bank vault shot. It's a very wide shot with the slow zoom and stuff, and like. You're right. Everything feels very stable and under control. Whereas, like the cops, everything feels like it's kind of unraveling. <laughs> Even one of the scenes I really liked was in the beginning when he finds out the guy's trying to hide the phone, and at first he reacts really calmly. And it's one of those things. It's the situation in a movie. It's, I hope this has happened in real life. If it ha it's happened to me, I think once or twice, where you expect expect someone to freak out and they don't. And you realize that somehow that's worse. That they're not oh, it's yeah. like beyond anger and it's like moving <laughs> to a new level. Bless you. God bless you. Bless you. Uh, and then so you're wondering, he gives him the phone back and he's like, no, not a problem. And everyone is just like not sure what to do. And he walks into this room where you can see through the glass and you see him having this conversation with himself pretty animated. And he literally will move position from one to the other and make these hand motions to make it look like he's talking to himself. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but then he, he opens the door again and immediately the energies change and he is violent and he whips him, brings him in there and then closes the door again. And you can see him beat the guy. And they, I, whoever the, the, the sound effects were incredible. 
you could hear what felt like bones breaking. And yeah. it actually was, it made me really uncomfortable. The sound effect was really effective. And, but after that, he walks out again and he was in control the whole time. And that is what's so scary. He admitted his voices. He never even raised his voice. He just beat him. And then when he comes out again, his voice is the same. He's yelling, but you, it was so effective. I feel like establishing he's violent, he's like yeah. violent, but fair and always in control. Yeah. And it's, uh, it was also like, even when people acted out, uh, when the hostages would act out against him, he even seemed prepared for, for those situations and what to do. And that's kind of when you realize it's like, okay, this guy's like playing this to a T here. And it's like, even the people that are kind of like, would normally give a crew like a tough time. He was completely ready for it. The only time he's caught off guard is when Denzel tries to tackle him, which leads to the yeah. fake hostage killing, which leads to the climax and their eventual escape. I was I was curious, even back then. Well, that like that's the one time the cops aren't following the script. If you think about it. like Denzel, he yeah. just kind of like out of nowhere pulls a mask and it's like, yo, you're not like any other interrogator would never do that. You're probably gonna lose your life if you try to do something like that on a real bank robber. You're 100 percent right. Unquote. That that actually makes total sense now. So I'm not going to remove that from the gripe section. Uh, were you rooting for this character? Were you, were you happy he gets away with it? I think I am. You know, it's again, it's it's hard because Clive Owen's the character you know the least about. Um, I think you, you know, you end up rooting for him, especially once you find out Christopher Plummer's real background. Um, and I think at the same time, it's like you're kind of rooting for Denzel, and then it sort of it sort of turns into one of these things where Denzel's like, "Well, I made my deal with Jodie Foster and the mayor, and so I don't really care what happens with the bank robbery." That another one of the scenes I liked actually is after the whole thing. Denzel has to go talk to his boss and the boss is basically like, look, none of the money was taken. Nobody died. Just bury this thing. And Denzel's like, something happened. Like this thing stinks beyond stink. You know, a bank was robbed for six hours. We don't know who did it. You know, we have all these witnesses. We don't know which ones are the actual bank robbers. And it's just like, it stinks to high hell. You can't tell me to bury this. And the guy's like, well, there's no one dead and there's no money gone. So it's like, I don't want to deal with it. And I kind of get that from the police chief, but it's like, <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot being said in that scene between like what's, what's really happening with New York cops and who's that, who has power and stuff. It's also the, the indifference of bureaucracy and yeah. the idea that no crime occurred. What do you talk? We watched that guy get beat. The, like there were, yeah. All those people were, were victimized, except none of them were wealthy. And none of them, like, they're all, they all seem like every average everyday people. I'm sorry, I'm not saying they couldn't be wealthy. There are people there, but they're not, they don't seem, they're not at Arthur Case's level. They seem to be just run of the mill people. But uh, yeah, to your point, it's, but when I, it, you think about the bureaucracy of it, and I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, that makes sense. And even now it makes sense. City has a budget. This was a huge embarrassment to them, but nobody's dead. No money was stolen. So why would you spend more time and money on putting attention on this and resources on this to eventually what, to bring them to court? And then, then the idea is I'm sure who would be good enough to pull this off? Could we even get them in court? And then what are you going to charge them with? Yeah. You you charge them with stealing from a safety deposit box that doesn't exist basically. Yeah, and then at the end of the day, oh, you can bust them for kidnapping and battery. And what if one of them turned? Like, one of them could turn. You could end up doing all this, embarrassing the mayor, who probably doesn't want it, the governor, who doesn't want it. And what you end up getting is, like, you get 
half the crew going to jail. I'm sorry, I'm not a lawyer. I'm gonna get out of there. But well, but, I got a, I got another question for you actually because yeah. at the end of this movie, I started to think. So at the end, Jodie Foster goes to Christopher Plummer and she's like, "Look, Clive Owen, he like got to your thing. He got the diamonds, and uh, he's gonna keep this like Nazi thing." Um, to, to like to ensure that you'll never come after him, right? Are you asking or what? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I, yeah, I guess I'm sort of clear. Like that's the, her like last message to Christopher Flummer is like he's got this document, so don't go after him because if you do, he's gonna like release this. But then at the same time, he gives that the the blood ring to Denzel, and Denzel follows the ring essentially back to Christopher Plummer and kind of figures out his history. So then I was wondering, well, it's like. Does Clive Owen need the the like Nazi proof still, or is like is Christopher Plummer in jail now? To me, I think it's one more thread that could possibly hand Plummer's character. Whether that means that Denzel Washington is now chief of police or or mayor or commissioner, I don't know. But I almost wonder if there could be like a sequel though, where Christopher Plummer does go after Clive Owen. I'm so glad you mentioned this because in fact there almost was a sequel. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. With all the original cast coming back, Jodie Foster, Denzel, and Clive Owen. I think, I'm not sure if uh, the case character would have been back, but it was going to be a similar setup. It, it sounded a little bit like sequelitis. It's all occurring in Manhattan again, and all the players are back. But, oh, yeah. And it ended up not being made. And actually, that was be one of my questions. It was frustrating. Spike Lee was frustrated about the process. It was his most successful movie, but he couldn't get financing for it, which makes me think, he either wanted a really big budget or maybe the script was a little honky and we can get into some of his later. Spike's one of these guys is always, Spike's always had a bunch of problems with every movie. Yeah. And we've talked about that too. Like a lot of, a lot of strong voices seem to have a hard time getting movies made. Uh, but but that, that, that's another question, but the, so that never ended up getting made, but like last year, a straight to Netflix sequel was made. I don't, I oh, really? see it. I, there doesn't seem to be anyone. I didn't even see Spike Lee as a producer. I'm not sure how it somehow exists in this universe. And none of the actors are back. So I'm not really even counting it. It's not a spiritual successor in my mind. To me, I kind of looked at this as a standalone film. But I would really like to sequel. And I think the way you... I would have liked to see these characters back. My hope is, again, as the optimist, I think that Plummer... I think that that is good news is going to get out and whether it's Clive Owen or Denzel Washington, or if it's Clive Owen using whatever breadcrumb he had to get to him in the first place, it's going to come out at some point. And the reason I say that is Denzel Washington, the character early in the film said, Oh no, I'm sorry. Not what's his name. Clive Owen says, you know, every lie, every evil deed, no matter like how deep it's buried, always come, like it stinks. And right, you'll, right. It'll always come to the top. To me, with the way I look at it is he played the cops the whole time. He knew their playbook. He knew what they were going to do. I think he knows what he needs to tell Case to get enough distance between him to drop this on him. And also there's the idea his resources and time and energy will be greatly diminished once this news comes out. He might not have the capability to go after this guy. And maybe, I mean, yeah. a man of his resources, that's probably a little na naive by me, but then again, what would he have to go on? There's no, the cops didn't investigate anything. He hasn't investigated it. So now it's a week after this major crime, everyone's gone. The cops don't have anything. You haven't investigated anything. And again, I have no idea what type of resources this man could have. 
all the physical physical evidence is gone. That, like he probably had a lot of the evidence destroyed. What I bet happens is Clive Owen waits till all all roads are closed and then would drop it. <laughs> that is, I mean, if there were a sequel, I think it'd have to revolve something around that, uh, like Plummer trying to retrieve that back from Clive Owen. I also think, like, if there were a sequel, I would want something where it like gives the Clive Owen character some background and context as to why he did the robbery, like in the first movie. I guess I think those would be like the things I would like look for in a sequel. But it sounds like they made some weird sequel on Netflix, so. Maybe I should watch that. Oh, I would not recommend it. I haven't even seen it. It just you'll see it and it looks pretty yeah, it, sure. it looks like a straight to DVD type <laughs> quality thing. Um do we do we want to talk about any more of the performances or because I have a couple more questions if you're willing to uh Sure, shoot 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 your questions off. So do you miss cigarettes in movie as much as I do? Because <laughs> the cigarettes are all throughout this film. And I think sometimes it can be overused, but I like it. And I don't know. I don't smoke cigarettes. I think it's a cool, it, it can be a tool for so many different ways. And I think one of the ways that it's usually used in films and it's used in this film, it's used almost as like a tell and poke. People are lighting up cigarettes when they're stressed out or when they're calm. Like it's, I just think it's one of these things where talk about like, I'm I'm all good with PC stuff, but people smoke yeah. cigarettes. They're not illegal, so why don't you yeah. people smoking cigarettes? You shouldn't do it in children films or Marvel movies. That's fine, but other films like steering away from it, I'm always just shaking my head. Like especially war films where they're actually like chomping on stogies, stogies and smoking cigarettes forever. <laughs> like in World War Two, in back to in Civil War, and like that's what they were doing. Like uh, so, so, here's my take on cigarettes in movies. I guess. Um, Outside the fact that clearly early on there was a lot of uh, advertisements that were paid for and stuff, I think that filmmakers love it when you can show an actor using a lot of body language and not actually saying something. And smoking gives you sort of this very uh, active way of using your body without actually going anywhere. And you can show a lot of emotion with like the way you smoke a cigarette, the way you light a cigarette, the way you breathe it in and out the way you hold your cigarette and stuff. I think there's all these things that go into it. And it's like, I think it's just one of these things for an actor. It's just a good tool to you. It's like, how would your character smoke a cigarette is a very, like very basic acting school type of question. The same type of thing of like, how would your character walk? You know, it's like that whole idea of building your character's body language is just one of those basic tools for an actor. So I think smoking in movies is just a really easy way of, an actor using their body language to portray emotions without using words. And like, if that inherently um, promotes cigarette smoking, I feel bad about that. <laughs> Me too. I like the way I like the, It's a subtle way of like physical. I'm just interpreting what you said. Then it's, yeah. it's like a physical interpretation, physical represent, representation or development of characterization. And yeah. to your point, one of the things I really liked and the reason I kind of called it out I noticed Clive Owen, at least in the one scene where it really stood out to me, and I think it happened at least one more, when he smoked a cigarette, he didn't, he, when, so after taking a puff, for anyone who smoked a cigarette, obviously like the ash builds, and usually you tap it off so that when you, when you take your next, uh, when you inhale, you see that orange ember and there's no ash at the end. Clive Owen's character has a steady, like, he doesn't ash it, so 
there's like a corridor of ash. So when you look at it and he's holding the cigarette, it's still burning, but he hasn't, the ash isn't off. That's hard to do. That means he has a steady hand. And yeah. he's, and again, I think it's supposed to show he's calm and in control and steady in all things that he does. And even the way he's very deliberate when he smokes them, like it's very, it's, there's no wasted movement. And it's to your point, I'm just, I guess I'm doing what old bad movies do. I am just repeating over and over again, what you already said in a much more eloquent way. So I'm going to drop it there. So now I know why I liked it. After hearing you say it, I I have a better appreciation of why I miss cigarettes in films. And that sounds really weird to say that I don't miss them. I miss it as a tool that some characters are allowed to have in films. And I think you don't need it in every film, but especially in adult films or crime films, I think it could be a great, a great tool in your belt. I think there's definitely, it's like with, like with anything you got to do it with nuance where it's like, you shouldn't just like have a guy break out a cigarette at like the breakfast table for no, you know, it's like if you do it in the right place at the right time in the right setting, then it can work for the character and stuff. But there are definitely movies where it's like out of place or it's like they do too much. Or I, I remember watching episodes of Mad Men where I was like, okay, like I get that they smoked in the fifties, but this is just a, like a smoke, like a smoke factory inside this office right now. Like people yeah. aren't actually, you know, smoking six cigarettes a minute here. Yeah. That, that, that's the other thing too. At a certain point, uh, realization can be too real. Um, I've read a funny article a while ago. It was in like around 2000 and it was from 1905 and it was talking about, excuse my French here, the horseship problem in New York because of all the horses and carriages and it was a different type of pollution problem. But I that believe was a problem. That. And I don't think anyone would love a period piece like watching and seeing a bunch of horse shit in the street. So just saying, not, not a yeah, perfect yeah. analogy, but to your point, moderation and nuance. Very, very yeah. key. Like, so I, I thought. But that yeah, was- I mean, yeah, I mean, think about like Ratso Rizzo and Midnight Cowboy, the way Dustin Hoffman would like take a cigarette up off the ground and like smoke it. And then, like, you know, it's like, I think it's interesting the way that all these characters can like actually the their methods of smoking cigarettes. I think there's a whole like acting side to it. But I also think there's a whole like tobacco and cigarettes just promoting themselves. Side yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some nefarious, a nefarious element to it as well. Um, but. Uh, back to Inside Med. Yeah. Do you have any more questions? Yes, I do. I do. Is Clive Owen supposed to be doing an American accent? You know, I've wondered that about a lot of his films. <laughs> I, it was so funny you say that. In the past, I remembered, I was like, yeah, he can do an American accent. And I thought of Sin City. And as I was listening to the accent now, I realized it's not American. It's not his full brogue, like as he's doing in King Arthur or Closer. Yeah, closer is his real like his real British accent. I feel yeah, like yeah, this one it's not really British. Like I, I mean, it's not American. It could be British or or if he's. Um, I also wondered at one point if they were trying to keep because at the end you see the other bank robbers in the car, and I wondered if all they were trying to keep all of their sort of nationalities a little vague because they're like there's kind of an older guy that I was like oh maybe he's like a Jewish guy, but then there's the younger woman. And I was like, I don't really know. Maybe they're just a random group of people. It was hard to put together. It was interesting. I also liked how they had, I, they couldn't have possibly planned it, but there were two women there. One of the bank robbers was a beautiful, busty woman or voluptuous, right. however you want to say it. And there was also one at the bank. Um, and it was funny that they, they kind of confused them. And I get why, but at the same time, you can describe that they also were two pretty clear different skin tones. They both... Both yeah. could have been white, but one was pale and freckled, 
and the other could have been Italian, maybe Latina. Uh, I thought about that too. Like for the cops, it's like you basically narrowed it down to one of these like two or three women was definitely involved in it. And it's like at that point, I would start to pressure a little bit harder on those three. But it's like they kind of just were like, well, they all cancel each other out. We can't do anything about it. <laughs> the only thing I could think is that as before they tightened the screws, they were uh, the, the the investigation was called off. Because to your point, yeah, yeah. That, that's all you need. I'm not a cop. I feel like all you really want that you're looking for a clue. You have a clue. You have one of your two. You don't know which one it is, but you know it had to be two of them. Unless yeah. they're saying they don't know. Maybe one of them got out without us knowing. But it didn't seem they didn't seem to have any appreciation that they could have gotten out or still in there. So I think you had to realize one of them was there. But um, all right, other question I had: Where would you rank this in heist films? And do you have an existing hi hierarchy of heist films? I realize I, I'm asking you this question, and I don't really have like a solid list myself. Although I can name I can name a few in no particular order that. That I yeah, I don't know if I have like a list ready to go. I know that like I know that Dog Day is kind of I feel like considered by a lot of people to be like kind of the Keystone bank robbery movie. And I, I mean, Dog Day is a great movie. I'm not in love with the end of Dog Day, but the Pacino and Cazale performances are unbelievable. And uh, yeah, just a really well directed movie too. Uh, Sidney Lumet in his prime, just rocking and rolling. I um, like. Um, I would. I, I would also say. I mean, I'm. I'm a fan of Ocean's Eleven. Ooh, <laughs> I think I like that's that. a fun movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't need to be a bank robbery movie. I guess. Yeah, any heist movie. Okay. Oh, any heist movie. I see. Um, boy, I know that. Like this would. I, I know that people on the internet would really push for Inception. I think people want that to be a heist uh, movie. It's so funny. I love that movie, but that I would put more. I think that's too sci-fi to be going up against. That might be unfair. You know what? That's so funny. I would. I don't think I'd put it in my top five. I would. I would. I would say here's another one. Maybe I know. I, I okay. This is gonna sound weird, but this is just my own personal taste. I like the score more than the Italian job. <laughs> oh, the the the. The Ed Norton, Robert De Niro, Marlon Brando movie. <laughs> so I'm actually. I really like that movie. I think that movie. I feel underrated. like it's kind of underrated, strangely. I don't know. And my, also, my dad loves that movie. That, that's also a good dad movie. That's like yeah, that Brando, is a good one dad of the last Brando films. You got De Niro, Norton. It's a great. Cast. It's a good convergence of like three actors that you know. It's like uh, probably, you know, Brando's really at the tail end of whatever he's doing, but it's still kind of like a fun movie. So th <laughs> these are the movies that come to my mind in no particular order, and I haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, so forgive me. And, and I'm sure no there's problem. a couple classics I'm leaving off here. And there's definitely some recency bias, but Hell or High Water. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Place Beyond the Pines. Have you seen that? I really like that. Uh, yeah, that's a good one, too. Inside Man, Ocean's Eleven, Heat, and The Town. You could throw The Town in there, and I think they're all, they're all like heist robbery films. And actually, I guess you've got nah, Heat and The Town. Like, if I was making a serious list, those two would probably be make on my top like he would probably be on my top five if i was making like a serious list and now that I, yeah this is a we'll probably do a real list of this at one point i'm throwing inception on there because now i think about it there are several good <laughs> heists in that film so not all successful to varying degrees but that's one of those like okay like i guess it qualifies there's a lot going on in inception <laughs> <laughs> um all right do you want to do you have any gripes of wrath i feel like we kind of talked 
talked about it like interspersed. Nothing major. Um, I, yeah, I guess my, my biggest gripe at the end of the day is like I want a little more backstory on Clive Owen because I'm, I'm not sure if I should be rooting for him or against him. I'm not sure if I should be happy he gets away with the diamonds at the end. Like morally, I still don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. And maybe that's what Spike wanted. Maybe you're not supposed to think about the bank robber's morals. Maybe you're just supposed to think about the bank owner's morals. What's interesting is I w- I'm okay with that. I, and I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not, this isn't to counter your, but it actually brought okay. up, it reminded me of something earlier that I said. It, it doesn't bother me as much. I think it works for the film because I think it kind of allows the viewer to put themselves in that space. And the whole time it's also, you're wondering, is that the space you want to be in? But it's kind of where you, it's a, it, you're easily falling there. But talking about whether he's good or bad or whether you're not supposed to know, we talked about the cops earlier in the film. Let's just focus on Defoe for now. But we talked about there's kind of this implied racism. He's also not making the cops out to be villains. Like, they're good guys. Like, like maybe not good guys, right? Where the cops clearly want to save as many people as they can. They clearly don't have the best uh, methods or tactics. And at certain times, they, they get kind of made it looking like fools. But I also, even when the guy's like, it's an Arab, it's an Arab, like that's a, clearly a racist moment. That's a low point. But they're not, you, you don't see them being like, we can only get the white people out or prioritize this guy. Or like, it's, I think what they're doing, I think what he's doing is really smart. And I think he kind of shows a part of the cops. He can show in a really subtle, nuanced way, maybe some of the prejudice or some of the sides we don't like to think about the cops. But uh, again, Right, but even at that that scene where they bus all the all the people, you know, they put all the people from uh, all the hostages onto the buses. It's like that's white people and everybody, and everyone's kind of upset about it. And it's like this really emotional scene. I actually really like that from Spike because in a different movie, they would just show them loading onto the bus, and instead Spike kind of shows the panic all of them are feeling, the security guards freaking out because no one's believing. You know, he's like, "I was the security guard. Why am I getting put on the bus and stuff?" And it's like you got to go on that bus because you were in the bank just like everybody else. And it's like, you know, the fact that no one's like explaining this to anyone. I like that whole sort of montage he had there. I liked it too. And, and uh, now that we're saying it, we've talked about all the white cops. It's also the two main, the two leads are the two black cops. It's it's uh, right. Denzel and, um, was it? Chiwetel Ejiofor. I'm sorry, Chiwetel. I've always had a hard time with that name. I don't know. It's a dumb name. Actually, I really like that actor too. I like him a lot. Have you ever seen that movie Red Belt? I haven't. Is that good? Yeah, it's a David Mamet movie. Um, I, I think he's really good in that movie. He's a good actor. I like that guy. Can I tell you, he first like got on my radar in Serenity, that like Joss Whedon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, he was the bad guy in that. And I might have seen him in other things, but I remember seeing that film. And I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. I thought it was good. I liked Nathan Fillion, but I walked away saying Chiwetel. I was like, he was the best. I'm sorry, again, I just probably mispronounced it. He was the best part of that movie, and it's been so cool to see him come. He's now like one of the best. He's won an Academy Award. He's one of the best yeah. actors in Hollywood, and he's awesome. And uh, I, it was, it was. And cool. he didn't have to change his name. No, he didn't. I mean, good for him. I'm sure there are plenty of guys who are like, "What do you think about Chuck Ewing?" <laughs> People really like that, or Chewy. Um, I'm sure he got asked to change that, but uh, yeah, I mean, props to that guy. He, I mean, he looks like he's kind of having fun too, just like being next to Denzel for the. Yeah, they definitely have a, they have a great chemistry as well. Um, for for me, in terms of gripes, we kind of talked about it. Nothing really sticks out, and that's not to say this isn't a, a perfect movie. But 
I really love one of the things I loved was the setting of New York, and he really spends a lot of time, and they actually filmed in downtown Manhattan, and I really like that. But as we talk about it, he spends more time characterizing Denzel and the city without really characterizing anyone else, and it doesn't. I don't know if he needs to be Clive Owen. I don't know. It's hard. I feel like I'm kind of grasping at straws here. Maybe just like making a gripe for the sake of it, but. I really like the story. I, I would have liked to be invested in maybe one more character. And I know I always say this and I'm going to get off the soapbox. This movie is plenty of representation. But you don't really have a female character to identify with. I don't know if it's giving his girlfriend more of a role or maybe showing a different side of Jodie Foster. Like maybe you show a, a, a scene of her talking to her kid going from like a mom to like power broker. I don't know. I'm not going to rewrite it. I, I hate when I do that. I hate listening to myself on <laughs> re-listen and hear myself do that. So I'm going to stop. But it was good. I don't know what about – I think there was one piece missing from the character list or one character needed a tad more development. You're right. For as much – I mean, I think for the most part we've been espousing positives. But it's like there's something about the movie where I wouldn't – I'd call it a very good movie. I don't think I'd call it a great movie. Whereas, like, I do think Dog Day Afternoon is a great movie. And I'm not sure exactly – what this is missing to sort of cross that threshold, but it's like not quite there. It almost feels like maybe it's a lack of personal stakes. And the only one who really has a personal stake in this is Arthur Case, who you're rooting against, who you find out right. awful yeah. guy. And at the end, it's also like talk about a movie. Movies are about consequences usually. And in this one, it's a, ha- it's like a weird happy ending for everyone. Case, we, we whether you believe or not, but like, I'm not going to say it's a happy ending for clearly the victims, but of the characters in this film, um, Case gets what he wanted. The cops, like, no crime happened. They get to brush it under the rug. The victims, while probably traumatized, are all alive. The power broker got what she wants. Clive Owen got what he wanted. And Denzel Denzel gets a diamond ring. Like, it's all, like, everything happens. Everything kind of goes a little too well to plan. I think, like, the number one rule of most bank robbery movies is, like, it's not going to go to plan, bro, so be ready for it. And it's, like, usually something goes astray at some point in a heist movie. But this is one where it's, like, pretty much followed Clive Owen's plan, like, right to the very end. And so it's, like, there's this feeling of, like, well, that's what happened. It's, like, there was no, you know, nothing went astray. There was no fly in the ointment. No, it, it was good. It was good. And yeah, I guess it's, yeah, there's something about it. It's a great film, but something about it, for some reason, it's a little bit less than the sum of its parts. And I'm not quite sure why. And, and that feels yeah. very negative, And it's not because, as I said, I really like this movie. And it's one of my favorite heist films. So I like it. But yeah, there's something just preventing it from hitting. And it does, normally, I'd be like, oh, it needs action. This film doesn't need action. I don't know what it is. It's just missing that je ne sais quoi. It's missing, so yeah, me, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. Me, you know, I, one of the things I also know, like a lot of Clive Owen's performance, he's kind of wearing a mask, and I wondered maybe if you could see his face, he could have given a more powerful performance. You, you know, not that I don't think this movie really got nominated for anything, but it's like maybe, you know, Denzel, maybe the Jodie Foster part would have been the roles that you would have like promoted for awards, I think. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, I don't think it was that kind of movie. I think it was always intended to be like a Hollywood heist film that was enjoyable. And I think Spike just layered it with a lot of stuff. And it kind of made it that it kind of gave it an extra layer to it. But yeah, I mean, I 
sometimes it's uh, it's kind of like imperceptible to explain why a movie doesn't go from very good to great. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Ford versus Ferrari, where, where we were talking about how they made this almost in the reverse. They wanted to make either a commercial film that was elevated to this possibly award-winning film, or they wanted to make an award-winning film that was they realized they could have a commercial thing on their hand. I think you're probably right. right. Like, so this was a script he inherited. So I think he inherited, not inherited, excuse me, this was someone else wrote the script. And it's, yeah, it's like a punchy... I was really, the, the original was supposed yeah. to be Ron Howard with Russell Crowe. Uh, this movie's so much better. I, I was reading that, and like, I, I think this, I, I it's hard to say. I really like Cinderella Man. I think talk about underrated movies. I think that's one of the most underrated. Yeah, it's pretty good movie. Of all time. But I think I think it's good that Ron Howard made Cinderella Man and Spike Lee made Inside Man. I do, I do. I'm I'm happy for both. That's funny. They both have man in them too. Yeah, that's um, funny. I thought that was funny. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting film, and I think to your point, I think what probably happened was Spike was able to elevate it probably more than it was. So maybe that's probably maybe 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 instead of holding it to the to the standard of a heist fun blockbuster popcorn film, we're being a little too critical of it's weird. We're giving yeah. credit for all these deeper meanings, but at the same time, right. like it's lacking some, but maybe that's it. Maybe it's like you touch on all these deeper themes in a really subtle way. And where is in 25th hour, I, we've compared it a lot. 25th hour to me is a great film that is more than the sum of its parts. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to stop coming in hawing here. I can't quite figure out what it is, but yeah, I think we're both kind of in agreement. Not not so much like any one. It's hard to identify the gripes. The more yeah. general gripe is that like all these like little, it's only small penalties. Hey, the scope of it just isn't quite a, you know, 25th hour or do the right thing. It just sort of have like a bigger scope in terms of a movie. Like at the end of the day, this is still just a heist movie kind of. Yeah, I think that's it. All right. Um, I think that you want to do final with, scores? Yeah, that is for me with grapes. Let's do final scores. Um, do you want to? I'm first? gonna give it. I'm gonna go like eight point three. I think. Uh, I think all the performances are good. The cast was really good. Um, the the mix of actors, I think, was a good pick. And then uh, I think Spike's direction. It's like this is pretty much his tightest movie. He doesn't really go astray. He does layer it with his own unique perspective still. And one of my favorite things about Spike is, like, he has his perspective from the black community, but then he also, like, he went to NYU, and he, you know, he knew Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone when he was really young, and so he does have this tie-in to classic Hollywood, and I love the, like, all the stuff with Dog Day Afternoon. Like, he knows about classic film, and he knows how to pay homage to those type of movies, so I like that he brings his own, like, unique culture into his movies, but then I also like that he has this, like, classic side of him, too, and a lot of his cinematography and the shots. I, I liked what you said too about how the way he shot the interior of the bank and the way he did handheld shots outside the bank. I thought all that was cool. It was. And we've talked about this in some other films. He does a great job of blending old and new. So it's a way that feels familiar. And at the same time, it's giving you something, it's pushing you in a new direction. I like that. I, I'm, I, I'm having a hard time with the rating because I, I want to, initially I was thinking a high eight, but now that we've kind of talked about it, and like I thought about it in the context of 25th Hour and the other heist films, I'm going to give it an 85. While okay. I think it's a really tight film, in hindsight, at over two hours, I think it could have been a little tighter. Uh, and that's hard. To, I don't know where you'd cut it. But I'm not really knocking it for that because I'm also going to give it some strong bonus points, especially given the topical nature of a lot of the things that this movie kind of touches on. 
I think that kind of makes up for, at least in my mind. I think it's aged pretty well. Oh, it's aged really well. And that's, I mean, like we talked about like the, the subtleties of some of the racist terms by the police. I think it's aged really well. So I'm going to give it an eight, five. I feel like it's an eight, five with a, it can swing a little bit. Um, but eight, five feels good for me. That's like, if yeah, you're that eight, five, that's strong. You're, you're, you're not just a good movie. You're, you're, I'm, I've rewatched you many times. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Right. I think that, uh, any, anything you want to say, Seth, any other tidbits or notes you want to uh, call out? Um, I think that, I think, uh, we talked about everything uh, we can talk about with Inside Man. Good, it's a good movie. Good I miss, movie. Uh, I was happy we watched it. Okay. Okay. Um, I think that does it for me. Do you want to say anything to the people, Seth? Goodbye, people. <laughs> Goodbye, Seth.